David Tabret, our pet vet today, joining us for a pet chat, and Danny Boss is here as well. Now, what is our topic Hi, Jane. today? I thought today that we'd talk about unusual foreign bodies, and no, that's not um, terrorist groups. It's yeah. In, inside your dog's gut, <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about. Of course, we'll be asking for your calls a little later on in the program, 49216216. Get your questions ready. But Yvonne has jumped the gun from Rutherford, and she's coming with her question right now. Hi, Yvonne. How are you going? Hello? Hi, Yvonne. How are you going? Um, I've probably got a silly little problem. Not I've got all. a couple of little budgies in a cage. Right. Um, uh, one of them is a little bit... Oh, let me... Uh, you know what the my cages are like for indoor? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little bit of embellishment on the front. Right, yeah. And uh, one of the little budgies got his claw caught in it last night, and he was hanging there for hours. Oh. And he's got, uh, oh, well, he's red raw. Yes. What can I put on it? I've got iodine, betadine, and detol. I would use none of those things. Right. Just use some salty water. Just use some salty water. Yes. Uh, certainly don't use Dettol. That's uh, generally based on a very dilute chlorhexidine and um, probably not... Uh, it c- the thing about birds is that they have what I call a metabolically active skin. So anything that gets on their skin, they either preen it off and ingest it or it goes through their skin into their system. So anything that goes on them is going to get absorbed, okay? Yeah. And their metabolic rate is very high. If you think of their size for their surface area, basically they've got this huge surface area that's absorbing things out of the environment. So even the things that we think are we're being helpful could actually be toxic because they're absorbing so much of it. That's why I decided to phone you. Excellent. So what I want you to do is to actually just use some salty water. Use some salty water. Okay, now what you do is get a, a cup of water that's been boiled. Mm-hmm. Uh, allow it to cool. Uh, not completely, but allow it to cool. And then add a teaspoon of salt. Now, you don't need the whole lot, obviously, but that's just the ratio. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. and th- this, makes, this makes an approximate lo- what we call a normal saline solution. Yes. T- teaspoon of salt. The reason we boil the water is to make sure there's no bacteria in that, uh, or at least semi-clean, and then use that as a solution to bathe it. Now, that's actually quite safe to use for this sort of thing where you're just treating some wounds. There are creams and gels and things like that. Iodine can be toxic because, again, it's being absorbed, and like most things in life, if you have too little, that's a problem. If you have too much, that's a problem. So best just to stick with the salty water, I would say. Mm-hmm. All right. If yeah. it if it's actually broken skin, and uh, there's an area you could do that for a couple of days. If you find that it is looking mucky, or he's not well, or you suspect a fracture or something, then certainly I'd say you need to get him to see the vet yeah. uh, because he may need the leg to be splinted, um, to have a splint put on it or a bandage. He may need some wound gels to be put on it. So, right. But start with some salty water. I'll do that. Okay. And could you uh, tell me uh, how I could cut his claws? Um, generally, the, my advice is that like, it can be a little bit dangerous because they start bleeding, and you know they don't. Oh, have, right. Yeah, they don't have a lot of blood to lose. So I would stick with using. You can get sandpaper perches, and that that mm-hmm. can be okay. But the other thing is to use um, some branches from your garden or mm-hmm. from the bush. Uh, just make sure there's no insects or anything on them. But yeah. The branches are all different sizes, different textures. Um, you can get similar things in pet stores as well, but you're probably better off doing that rather than thinking, 
I've got to get him out and clip his nails. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to see him on some sort of, you know, different textured surface rather than just the straight dowel or plastic, yes. which um, it's all the one size and that can actually be damaging to their feet. Right, I so, understand. All right. So try those things, and uh, I'm sure he'll be much happier. If you can, I think also look at maybe changing the cage, but obviously that's a longer-term issue for you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for your call very much indeed, uh, Yvonne, and, uh, yeah, very plenty good to Yvonne talk about. To and uh, Joanna's running, rung in from Charlestown to speak to Dr. David Tabrett, our pet vet on Pet Chat today. Hi, Joanna. Hi, David. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, I have a toy poodle. Mm-hmm. She is um, nearly 12 years old. Um, but we, every time we pick up our iPhone and go to use it or a text message sound comes through, she starts to shake and runs outside and sits outside. Oh, dear. Now, any other mobile phone? Okay. But the <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> You've obviously downloaded that app. Uh, dog, get out of my house. Yes. Oh. <laughs> All you need to do is delete the app and everything will be fine. I'll be, I'll be right, huh? So okay. basically, yeah, she's, so she's got a, a negative association with the use of it mm. uh, and there's something about the frequency or the noise or the appearance of it that really mm. she's yeah. a, is feeling this negative uh, association with it. I'd be looking at training her that there's a positive association by um, maybe having some treats handy and when it goes or makes a noise is just ask first of all you need to distract her mm-hmm. and you can do you can train her to do this because of course you can just send each other messages you, you know you don't have to wait yeah. for the random message that arrives and you think oh I've missed the opportunity to train her so it is something you could set up and do mm-hmm. and Ask her to sit so she's doing something for you and then very quickly give her the treat. It has to be really close in timing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, she will not realise what you're trying to say. Mm. Okay? So something positive associated with it. And, you know, they say you can't teach, teach an old dog new tricks. Well, you can, uh, mm-hmm. but you just have to be consistent That's right. and persistent. And using, I think this is where food rewards are helpful because it's a real base uh, instinct of the dog is that you know a bit of food's good. Bit of food's good. Yeah, she doesn't always want to eat, but every cat will give us something nice. <laughs> give us something nice. Yeah, maybe cut back on her food a little bit overnight so that she, uh, she's just got that little bit of hunger mm. during the day. And do do a bit of practice with her, like you know, over the next few days, mm-hmm. uh, and just gradually uh, so that the treat becomes a little bit further away, and she'll gradually get used to the idea you know that iphone that's not such a bad thing but you don't want to be stuck in this routine that every time the iphone rings you have to give her a treat that's definitely so a you do want to really good situation. you do want to move away from you that do indeed. but start off i think that'd be great you're listening to pet chat right now on 2 rfm at 25 past 12 and danny boss look uh jane I thought it's a good segment to have, being the time of year is the, the rains we've had, how wet the ground is. Let's talk about worming, worming your dogs. What's required? Why is it important? And what to look out for uh, when worming your dogs? So 
On, on the phone, we've got today an interview with Scott Cumming, who's from Durox, which is a Rutherford-based manufacturer of pet and vet products, and they're also makers of the dogwormer Papantel F. Scott is the companion animal manager at Durox, and he's also a vet, so I thought he would be great to talk to about worming the dog and what's needed. Hi, Scott. Hi, Danny. How are you going? Hi, good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. My Look, pleasure. what... Um, what are the main types of worms uh, in our area that we need to uh, look at for worming our dogs? Well, when you think about dogs, there's really four types. You've got your roundworms, your whipworms, hookworms, and tapeworms, and they're, they're pretty much everywhere in the environment, and they can affect just about any dog you have. Do they are they existent all year round? All those worms, or some are at different uh, times of they're, the year. There can be some seasonality to it, but generally speaking, particularly in the more or less temperate climate we have here, there are going to be infective stages of those worms pretty much everywhere all year round. Okay. How, how do dogs end up getting worms? Well, they can be passed on by a whole bunch of reasons, and it, there is some variability depending on what type of worm you have, but they're generally in the environment, and dogs can pick up eggs just from walking around. They can also pass them from, from dog to dog. Yes. If they're puppies, they can pick them up from their mother and they can actually pick them up while they're, they're still in utero, so passed on even before they're, they're born, and they can also be passed on in the milk. So okay. there's heaps of ways that a dog can get infected with worms. Now, if we don't treat our dogs for worms, can they get passed on to humans? They can. It's, it's an interesting life cycle, the way it happens with people. It's not that they get the worms and they get in, uh, intestinal infections with worms. It's actually the way the worms are progressing through the body of people, for instance, and kids are particularly at risk. Right. Roundworms, if you ingest the eggs, they will actually migrate through the body and they'll cause damage through the different organs they pass through. And, you've seen, and we've seen problems with uh, liver damage, we've seen lung damage, and even sometimes these these immature forms of roundworms can get caught in the eyeballs and cause uh, quite significant wow. uh, blindness. Yeah, it's quite scary, actually. How, do, how like, would roundworms get passed on to the humans from the Well, dog? they pick them up from the environment, and right. particularly with, with kids whose hygiene may not be so good. You have right. a, a dog who has a roundworm infection. They pass out the eggs in their feces. Kids are playing with the dogs or playing in the backyard, and just through simple, you know, poor hygiene or just bad luck, they ingest those eggs, they go into the intestinal tract and then they start migrating through the body from there. Okay, wow. And some of the other worms as well that you mentioned, are they passed on to humans as well? Yeah, they can do. One of the, the quite nasty ones, which has been quite significant in the past, has been the hydatid tapeworm. Now, that's one we don't see too much anymore, but it does have some uh, some fairly serious effects and it actually can cause large cysts in the body and they can hang around for years and often people don't know they've got them until they become so big they start to cause some fairly serious disease. Okay, so to avoid it spreading to our family, obviously we need to worm our dogs, but what regime do we need to set up? What schedule? Well, that's exactly right, Danny. It's, um, it's really important to give uh, a really good wormer to your dog and it's important to look for a wormer that has a combination of products that will take care of all of the four categories of worms and the different species that exist in that category. Now, with adult dogs, you're looking at uh, three monthly worming. Now, that has been the traditional measure, but it, it does depend on your situation. Sometimes you do need to worm a little more frequently, particularly if you've got lots of dogs or if you've got kids. In the circumstance where you've got puppies, you want to worm a lot more frequently. Mm. Now, you assume puppies have an infection from birth, so you give them a, a worm every two weeks 
until they're three months old, and then you give them a wormer every month until they're six months old, and then they go on to a, an adult three-monthly regime. Now, I know in the store, like, um, when people do buy their worming uh, tablet for their dog, we ask them, well, what's, what's the weight of the dog? And they go, oh, um, um, oh it could be 10, could be uh, 12 kilos. Like, if people are guessing, what do we do in terms of the wormers? Do you, do you go for a larger wormer tablet that'll do, you know, a more of the weight of the dog, or is that an overdose? Well, it's, it's always best to get an accurate dose, and probably the best way with a small to medium-sized dog is to put yourself on your bathroom scales and then pick up the dog and measure both of you and then su- subtract your weight. But if oh. you don't have don't have a way of doing that, you can pop them down to your vet. Vets have always got a great set of scales there to get an accurate weight. If you can't do any of those things, you want to avoid trying to do an underdose because that means you're not killing all the worms. And apart from having a dog who's still got worms, you're going to be breeding resistance. You can go for a, a tablet that can be slightly bigger than your dog. You don't want to go too too much, but most of the drugs and the active ingredients do have a good safety margin. But obviously the best thing is to get a really accurate weight. So if you've got a 15-kilo dog and the tablet comes in a 10-kilo tablet, do you go one-and-a-half tablets? Yeah, exactly right. Okay. Yeah, that's precisely right. All right. Well, look, thank you very much in regards to the information about worming. And I, I think it is important for people to know out there that it is an important job to do every three months. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, excellent. And that's Scott Cumming. Thank you for joining us today. You're listening to Pet Chat, and we have our pet vet, Dr. David Tabret, with us. And we have a question from Martina from Toronto. She has rung 49216216, and she has a question, I hope, for David. Hi, Martina. Hi, David. Um, I've got a Jack Russell. She's she's a female, mm-hmm. and um, she keeps on scratching her back on the corner of the table. And I've checked her for fleas, and I've frontlined her. Mm-hmm. So I've frontlined, I should say. Um, I can't see anything that looks like mites on her skin, but she's got a very thick fur for co- mm-hmm. coat, I should say. And I don't know what to do about that. Okay, now how old is she? She's two. Two years old. So is this just a recent problem or? In the last two or three weeks. Okay. All right. Um, and is she inside most of the time or inside and out, outside? Inside and out. In, in, the, in she and out. inside. Okay. And do you have other animals? I have two other dogs as well. And how are they? They're okay. Uh, they're a little bit itchy but not to the extent that she is. Right. And she does this little bit of whimpering type thing. And she's sure. scratching. Yeah, yeah, the poor little thing. So where she's scratching is just over the base of the tail, up on her rump, is it? No, in the middle of her back. Oh, in the middle of her back. Okay. Yes. All right. Um, well, it's a good thing, like, you check for fleas, and that would always be the first thing I would look at, uh, That uh, mainly because they're just so irritating to the skin. And a lot of people often say, you know, it's not flea season and so on, but... In our environments, particularly when we have pets inside, the temperature is such that uh, the fleas are able to breed year-round. So we do want to attend to that, and that sounds like you're doing the right thing. Just make sure you're treating all of the pets, um, and if you've got any other you know, cats or ferrets and so on, they could also harbour fleas. So make sure everybody gets treated at the same time. Uh, they're also important is to make sure that you 
looking at the whole environment in terms of flea control. And as I said, the reason we harp on that a bit is just because it's like 90% of the time that's going to be the issue and it's they're just so hard to treat and get rid of. But we do see other causes. So the area that you're talking about, um, I would certainly be thinking about other parasites would be a possibility and things like sarcoptes, uh, which is a, a type of mite. Now, you won't see them. They're microscopic. Okay. okay. So usually they're intensely itchy and they're over the body, but you can get areas where they're you know, more localised. Um, the other type of mite that we see, which is also quite itchy, can be more localised, and that's the demodectic mite. So there's a couple of other options there. I guess the other thing too is that if we have an area where there might be a bit of pain, so in the back if there's some prior trauma, it could be that it's set up a little bit of a pain cycle and that's actually you know, rubbing and scratching at it might be trying to relieve that as well. Um, I don't think you're because you play with the other dog. Plays and they're all right. chasing and jumping. And yeah, yeah. Okay. In the meantime, what we want to do, though, is to use a medicated shampoo. I like the aloe vera oatmeal blend shampoos, and I've been talking about them for years, and because they work, you know, because they are really helpful. But I certainly would look at going and speaking to your vet and seeing if we can get a diagnosis along, making sure there's no mites, that's the thing, because none of our regular treatments really address those, uh, okay. and they need a specialised treatment. So, And once it's there, like if it's sarcoptes mite, for instance, it can spread to people, and in people it's called scabies. So... You know, the the mite is called Sarcoptes scabii, and uh, it's important to obviously get control of it if your dog's got something like that. Apart from the uh, itchingness and the, the soreness that's happening, you want to make sure that there's nothing that can spread to the rest of the family. But in the meantime, use an aloe vera oatmeal blend. That might help a little bit, um, and certainly make sure all of the animals are being treated and the household for fleas as well. So it sounds as though, Martini, you've got some work to do. You've got a do. bit of work to do, yes. On 2NURFM, we're taking your calls, 49216216, if you've got a problem with your, with your animal, your pet. And TJ joins us from Black Hill. G'day, TJ. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, I have a question about uh, training a dog. Now, um, traditionally, my dog is scratched on the back door to get in, and I'm in a rental house, and the landlord has just had the the door painted, and so I don't want him to do that anymore. So I thought maybe I could train him to ring a bell or something when he wants to come in. Would that be possible? I'm sure it's possible. Uh, you might end up with a, a scratched door in the process, though, because, okay. it, you know, training is not just an event. It's a process that you have to work on, and it could take a long time. And the other thing is that if... Um, if the bell's not there or if he forgets, he's going to go back to what he knows. So I think your circumstances where, you, unless you're prepared to be replacing the door frame every year or painting it, I would even look at getting one of those protective covers that you can buy at the um, you know hardware store and that that actually go on the side and that means that at least if he scratches, it's not going to harm the underlying timber. As far as um, other options, uh, I guess a doggy door is always an option. Um, I haven't seen anybody use anything like ringing a bell. I know my cat just sits there and scratches the glass. I have seen that available on American websites, a ringing bell um, training method, but it is, a, as you say, take ages, it takes I a think. long time to train a dog. Yeah, 
to do and it. It can be done, but it takes time and patience. And <laughs> I, I would I would also comment, I think that when you see that happen, like you'll see, uh, as Danny said, on the internet and you'll see videos, like I, no, no reflection on your dog, TJ, but some dogs, you know, they're... They're just not up to that standard, all right? Okay. So I'm not saying we don't... Yes, we're not being intellectually challenged here, I think might be the, the best way of putting it. So it could happen, no doubt. It takes a long time, um, but uh, and it's very intense because you've got to be there and do the training and so on. And I think probably putting a protective thing on there would be a good idea. If you actually put a bell where, the, where he's scratching... And then you respond only when he rings the bell. Mm. That'd be the way to go. There's two types. Okay. There's there is bells that I've seen on on the internet where it's on the door handle, but then there's a bell you put on the the ground. Yes, close to the door. Yeah, there you and, go. And they get taught to press that bell that's on the ground close to the door. Yeah. Yeah. If you could train your dog to send you a text message when he wants to come in, <laughs> that's what you I need. I can see that's where we're heading. <laughs> Thanks for your call, TJ. And Ian joins us on 49216216 from Cessnock. G'day, Ian. G'day there. Uh, I come home from work there a fortnight ago, and the missus has got uh, two eight-month-old um, um, cats. Uh, I can't think of them. Three of them, and... Um, not long-haired cats, but they're not short hair. Sure. And um, uh, they started this bad cough. Mm-hmm. And one sounds like a hooping cough, and the other one is just a bit of a cough. And so, I'm wondering whether they might have this cat cough I've heard about. Um, well, we do see a number of upper respiratory diseases in cats, and very commonly... So they've only just recently acquired. When you say you got home from work, I'm assuming when you left for work, the cats weren't there. No, I've, I've been away working. But, oh, okay. Um, yep. Yeah, uh, she got them a couple of days beforehand from um, um, where you go and you can buy these critters and uh, if you don't like them after six weeks, it must be a shelter type thing. Well, we do see, as I said, a couple, there are a number of respiratory diseases and Coughing in cats is almost always respiratory in nature. Like in dogs, it can be heart-related, but in cats, it's pretty much airway disease. So it could yeah. be could be upper airway. Uh, and if they're sneezing a lot and got runny eyes and nose and so on, then there's a couple of uh, diseases, uh, feline herpes virus and feline Khaleesi virus. Uh, they're the main ones. They can progress to lower airway, so you can end up with uh, infections lower down. Um, we also see a number of other uh, conditions, non-viral, um, chlamydia, and there's um, bacteria and mycoplasma. Now, some of these are covered by vaccinations, but if your, uh, yeah. you know, if your pet's already got it, then a vaccination is protection. It's not going, yeah. not going so to cure it. They're, they're clear eyed and everything else, but um, yeah, the one coughs a fair bit, and the other one they don't cough much, and. Uh, I said, oh, well, it looks like a trip to the vet. And uh, yeah, when I was listening to the radio and heard you, I thought I'd just give you a bit of a tin. Yeah, this, I, I would certainly suggest that they do have a trip to the vet because there are some very good treatments available um, and you do need to get that diagnosis or at least get a little bit 
characteristic of, you know, is this an upper respiratory problem, is it lower, and how can we manage it? Unfortunately, if it is one of these viral things, they do tend to hang around for a, a long, long time, and I'm talking years. I mean, some of these cats, they are what we call chronic flu cats. They can flare up with stress and things like that. So it's very important to have things like good diet, good overall health. Uh, there are some supplements, dietary supplements, that can be helpful there are some medications that are helpful, but the viral conditions very, very hard to get rid of altogether. On the other hand, if there's a, a query about a bacterial or mycoplasma, it might mean a course of medication can get this problem cleared up for you. So definitely worth a visit to the vet. You're listening to Pet Chat at 14 to 1 and we're happy to take your calls if you've got a question you'd like to put about your vet. 49216216. Question about your pet. Did no, I say that? You said question about your vet. Oh. You could ring them with a question about your vet. I'm not sure I can answer that. Try the pets, please. We could do that. We could do that, yes. <laughs> now, you were wanting to talk also about... Um... Unusual foreign bodies. Mm. Look, I've, I've been a vet for quite a while, 23 years or so. Everything that a dog could eat, I've seen inside dogs. They are amazing. Or at least I know someone who's seen that. The... Cats seem to be a lot smarter. So we'll just talk about dogs today. My, they do have a smaller mouth, generally. I have seen... No, actually, I tell a lie. <laughs> I tell a lie. I, I should correct that. Cats, you know, they like wool, playing with wool and string yeah. and stuff. They get it caught around their tongue. Okay, around the base of their tongue, it loops, and the ends go down into their uh, gut, and they can be quite long. And what happens is that the gut is designed... This happens in dogs as well is that the gut is designed to move one way. So the, the gut grabs onto the string and pulls it, okay? And then it grabs on a bit more. And so what you get is the, the gut starts to bunch up, and it well, it's what we call plicates, where it bunches up like an accordion, okay? And the, the string actually starts to cut through the wall of the, the bowel. So when we see what we call linear foreign bodies, which is could be string or rope, I've seen dogs with, they've eaten rope uh, that's attached to a ball, you know, ball gets swallowed and the rope goes and the ball sits in the stomach and the rope runs down into their gut, same thing. And uh, what happens is that uh, they're really hard, first of all, to diagnose because they often have not a characteristic pattern on their x-rays and secondly, they can be quite frustrating to treat because when we go into surgery, we've got these pieces of bowel that are all bunched up and we can't just take out the string in one place. We have to make multiple incisions. I remember a cat I did not so long ago with surgery that uh, required six enterotomies, which is where we open the intestine, cut the bit of string, you know, open the next bit, cut that bit and pull it out. And then we've got to close it. And it's quite, quite um, inv- invasive. For the for the animal, so I was going to say cats avoid it, but no, they don't. They get string. Dogs, however, do like to eat anything and everything: nuts, balls, toys, coins. David, uh, one of my friends, his dog growing up, they had a Labrador. There you go. Had, it, that's had a risk a, factor. Ate a footy sock. You know the really long footy socks. Oh, uh, <laughs> I can imagine because that would do the same thing. It would actually stretch out through the it gut. Did. But you know what happened? It came out the other end. It did it. it well, did. It's very lucky. Yeah, <laughs> very lucky. Very lucky. <laughs> they didn't use it, though. Well, we've, we've had all <laughs> sorts of things. And, look, I have to tell this story because I do uh, get a chuckle. But we did have this dog once, and it was brought in with a foreign body, and it turns out that it had eaten a piece of underwear. 
of ladies' underwear. And we did the surgery. Now, we didn't really know too much about the situation, but the the uh, when we actually did the surgery and we pulled it out, it turns out the dog had eaten a G-string. <laughs> okay, now it had bunched up, hadn't caused the problem. Except when we took it out, we then, when the owners came to visit for their post-surgical consult, we were a little bit cautious about whether or not this actually belonged to the female partner because you just never know, you know. The dog's eaten a bit of underwear and couldn't be found. Luckily for us, it turned out to be hers. She well, luckily you know. for her. As I mean, you uh, skirted around the situation. Oh, very good. Very good, Jane. So all sorts of things. The nasty ones that we see, don't assume, although Danny's story is good, because we do see some foreign objects travel through. I've mentioned linear foreign bodies generally won't do that. They just bunch up. But we have seen, um, sorry, a reminder, I have to go do things. Um, but I have seen things like rocks. I remember a dog came in once and the owner said, I think it ate a rock. And I'm like, yeah, right. And I had a feel of the belly and, oh, that feels like a rock. X-rayed it. It was a rock. Oh. Went to surgery, pulled out a rock. Fishing hooks, lots of fishing hooks. So be very careful around if you take your dog to the beach or the lake because they'll cause problems. Uh, and, oh, one of the other things we do see is, um, as I said, toys and things like that. Now, if they're in the stomach, that's a lot better. Your dog might just be off its food and starts vomiting. But if they get a complete obstruction of the intestine, they will be very, very sick very sick, and require blood tests and fluid therapy, surgery, as I've said, uh, imaging by way of ultrasound or x-ray. It, there's a whole lot involved. Without treatment, your dog could die. Okay, so complete obstruction is not good, um, something that you need to attend to. And if your dog could have eaten, like a Labrador, could have eaten something, then make sure you get onto your vet straight away. This is Pet Chat and Dr. David Tabret taking mm-hmm. your calls. Tony joins us now from Wood Rising with a question. G'day, Tony. Oh, g'day, uh, David, is it? Yes, what can we do for you? Yeah. Uh, I've got a uh, uh, miniature poodle. Um, yep. It's probably six years, six, seven-year-old, and it's developed a, like a cough, and it, it feels like it wants a dry reach, and it sort of goes in as though it's going to dry reach. Yep. Uh, but it doesn't. But uh, it's probably been doing it now for about a year, but spasmodically, maybe once a week or once a month. And every now and again, it will throw up a bit of mucus, but it's very clear and there's nothing in it. Mm, okay. I was just wondering what would cause that. Have you had him to the vet at all about this? Um, I did take him to the vet and, and he just said, oh, it didn't seem like there was, sort of looked down his throat and didn't seem to be anything caught in his throat or anything, but... Mm. Um, he's sort of, it's been persistent and I thought, well, it's been yeah. going on a fair bit now. Yeah, yeah, I think if it's this duration of time, it's certainly something that needs to be looked at. So the sort of things I'd be thinking about with this particular breed would be um, collapsing airway syndrome yeah. would be one. And I don't know if you read anything about this, but it happens um, in certain breeds, smaller breeds, uh, brachycephalic, which are the short-nosed breeds, but also these smaller poodles and Maltese and Yorkshire Terriers and things we sometimes see this and this is where the cartilage in the in the trachea is actually deformed so that oh, okay. when they breathe the airway doesn't stay open it gets sucked in and they right. get this collapse and that can trigger this cough cycle okay. uh, and there's different grades of it like it's not an absolute so it could be a grade one through four with four being the worst with complete collapse. Yeah, uh, okay. So the, and the way to tell with those is there's a couple of different techniques of 
looking at it, but generally it involves uh, X-rays or some other form of imaging, or even um, tra- uh, like a camera down the throat. It can be a little bit involved. The other thing okay. we'd be worried about is just making sure the heart's okay. So getting the heart heart checked. But as you said, the duration of time would tend to suggest that it's not the heart because it would progress a bit more quickly. I would be thinking airway disease first and second, and collapsing airway disease would be my number one thing. The second thing is you can get chronic bronchitis or chronic airway disease in these smaller dogs and uh, usually diagnosed on X-ray. So there's a couple of things to look at. Certainly would need a visit to the vet, and there usually there is treatments available for those sort of problems. Okay. Thanks for okay. that, Tony. And Isaac has rung in from Cameron Park. Hi, Isaac. G'day, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. What can we do for you? Mate, I've just bought a uh, Rottweiler. Um, he's um, about 10 weeks old. And look, people keep on sort of talking to me about, um, you know, they're not good dogs around kids, everything online. I've seen, seems like they're pretty good. We've owned them before, we've had no problems. But is there any sort of thing with um, aggression or behaviour that um, you see in these dogs or, you know, because I've got children and that, that, mm. you know, what would you, um, what would your comments be on that sort of thing? Um, it's, look, it's obviously a very important topic and always, uh, you know, at the forefront of people's minds. I think sure. a couple of things that really come through for me is that a lot of different breeds work better with different ages, but by and large, my experience has been is that the important thing is socialisation. Okay, so that you get your pup into puppy preschool would be an absolute mandatory requirement. Okay, Okay? and 10 weeks, they usually start puppy preschool around about the 12 weeks. And some of them get booked out, so I would certainly be contacting your vet and seeing if they've got puppy preschool or if they can refer you to one because that would be one of the ways that you can minimise the risk of harm. The second thing is with kids at different ages, dogs grow really quickly, kids don't. Okay, so your dog is an adult and is 40 or 50 kilos within 12 to 18 months and your kids are still kids. Um, So their behaviours are going to be changing and the dog's behaviour changes a lot faster than what the kids do. Involve the kids in things like um, the basic obedience that's being taught through the puppy preschool. Involve them in things like feeding the dog and how to properly handle food around a dog. You know, you don't take food out of a dog's mouth and sure, don't, yeah. ap- don't approach a dog uh, while they're eating because they're the risky times. Um, but socialisation is very, very important. It teaches a dog how to behave like a dog and it teaches you as well how to look after your dog but also how to establish that hierarchy and how to control your dog and the basic obedience just comes along and helps you in all aspects. Um, Sounds very good, yeah. So yeah, that would be my number one thing would be uh, puppy preschool. Great. Uh, that sounds very good. Thanks for your help. No worries. Puppy preschool happens all over the place, David? Pretty much now, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's very few vet clinics that wouldn't already have it. A lot of pet stores are actually have the uh, puppy preschool or someone running it or someone coming in or they can refer you to one. It's a very, very strong uh, program. And my experience has been is that it's helped dogs immensely fit into households. And it look, it's helped owners as well realise how to behave with their dog. And that brings us towards the end of Pet Chat today. Um, thank you, Dr. David Tabret, and Thanks, Jane. Thank you, Danny Boss. Thank you very much, Jane. And uh, we'll be back next, next week, uh, Wednesday, that is, after the, mid- after the midday news on 2NURFM.